The state of higher education is tumultuous. Not a single week goes by without some story of political activism, unjust cancellation, campus protest, etc. hitting the news. Our universities really don't have to be like this. Rolston College aims to reshape this landscape. Alongside its MA in the humanities, Rolston is launching a summer school teaching Latin in Sicily, Rome and other sites. The program, running from July to September, offers immersive language learning with experts, literary reading, seminars and even archaeological visits. Most importantly, this course is designed for people who have never studied Latin. Anyone in the world can apply, and the strongest applicants will be awarded full scholarships that cover the cost of the entire program. Apply by the 31st of May at rolston.ac forward slash Latin dash program. Welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is a professor of politics at Birkbeck University in London, Eric Kaufman. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. Uh, as always, before we get into the interview itself, tell our viewers and our listeners a little bit about who you are, how are you, where you are, what's been your story? Well, my story, I mean, I have a very kind of cosmopolitan background to begin with. So I was kind of born in Hong Kong, grew up in Canada, uh, moved to London. Um, you know, my, I've got, you know, Jewish, Chinese, Latino in my, in my background. So I've got that very kind of international, lived in Japan for eight years. Um, but the study, or you know, what I study is nationalism, and that's partly because if you grow up abroad, you're much more aware of, you know, it's problematized, the idea of what is your country, what's it ab about. So I developed this interest in nations and national identity, so that's something I've focused on for over 20 years. And uh, you've got a book that that's uh, what we'll be talking about predom uh, predominantly in this interview. It's called White Shift, which is right. coming out very soon. Y yes, yeah. End of October in the UK, uh, end of January in the United States. And you've been kind enough to provide us an advanced copy, which I've read is absolutely fascinating. It's kind of dynamite, I think <laughs> it's fair to say. Uh, and, um, you know, let's get straight into that. I think the main narrative uh, at the moment when we talk about populism and nationalism and all these things is... Look, it's the Rust Belt, it's poor people who are freaking out about their job prospects and their future economic security and all of that. And what you do in your book is essentially debunk all of that. And if it wasn't called White Shift, I think it would be called It's Immigration Stupid. Right, exactly. So a lot of the, uh, the, the media narrative around populism immediately after, say, the Trump or Brexit vote turn to, you know, who voted for Trump or who voted for Brexit and where do they live. And you can see that the cities tended to be, say, remain voting and, and outlying areas tended to be for leave. And those areas tend to be a bit more deprived. So people kind of jump to these conclusions. Well, it's the people, the left behind. They're the ones who voted uh, to leave or they, they voted for Trump. The problem with that, of course, is that, you know, just take London as a city. It's got you know, a large number of people who are not white British. It's got a large number of people with university degrees, a large number of young people. So that makes it fairly unusual demographically. So the only real way to do that study properly is to take a white working class person in London and a white working class person in the north, in a, in a, in a mining town, for example, and compare them. And when you do that, you actually see, a, if anything, 
that person in London is slightly more likely to have voted leave. So that's the kind of method where you're actually looking at individuals, individual level large-scale survey data, not looking at these election maps or talking about opioid crises or so on. So yeah, the, the first takeaway really is that uh, it's almost all about immigration when we talk about right-wing populism, not left-wing populism, Podemos and Corbyn, that is about the economy, but right-wing populism in the West, not again in India or in, even in Eastern Europe, in the West, it's about immigration. And the ac academic literature is actually pretty solid on this as well. Uh, the academic literature shows this and wouldn't dispute this. Now, some, of course, would dispute it, but certainly when it comes to immigration, a lot of the academic, there was a meta-analysis done, which is an analysis of all the literature, and they, they find essentially that how poor you are, whether you're unemployed or not, whether you've lost your job, those are not things that predict your immigration attitudes. And these are not things that are driving right-wing populism. So the mainstream narrative right now is essentially uh, people have nothing to, to live on, the people don't have a job, like you say, and they're lashing out against immigrants because that's where we normally channel our anger when we've, we've lost out and on whatever. And you say... Well, I say no. I say essentially what this is about is anxiety over ethnocultural change, threats to identity. I mean, I'll give you a, a kind of question that we might ask people. Say in this country, we ask Brexiteers, you know, white British Brexiteers, how concerned are you? Uh, how much of a problem is uh, pressure on public services? Zero to 100. 100 being, it's a big problem. Um, and people give it about a 40, you know, Brexit, leave, leave voters give it about a 47, 48 out of 100. And all you have to do is stick the word immigrants putting pressure on public services. So it's the same question, how much of a problem is pressure on public services, but it's immigrants putting, just two words, pressure on public services. It goes from sort of 48 out of 100 to 70 out of 100. For Remainers, it's the reverse. And actually, it makes sense. What the Remainers are doing actually does make sense, because if the problem is pressure on public services, the part of that problem that is accounted for by immigrants has to be smaller than the problem itself. So it makes no sense hmm. to get a number moving from, say, 48 up to 70, because the problem, the, the immigrant-fueled part of the problem cannot be larger than the whole problem. But that's a, just a way of, by way of explaining that this is not driven by people's worry about pressure on public service as economic things, which is sort of the narrative of probably both parties, in a way, because that's what they know. They've got economic policy tools. It's also safer, because we can talk about, well, people are feeling pressure on material things, schools and hospitals, and that's why they're upset about immigration. It's not that nasty cultural stuff, but actually it is that cultural stuff. Well, let's break that down. When you say the nasty cultural stuff, right. what, you're not, uh, I've read your book very carefully, so you're not saying that the majority of the people who are on the populist right hate immigrants and they're racist, right? You're not right. saying that's, that. I'm not saying that, no. I actually think we need to open up a conversation about white identity, first of all, and secondly, something I call the white tradition of national identity, uh, and to, to do so in a fair-minded way. So there is a certain kind of toxicity around the subject of white group identity by Mitchell. Oh, by, really? By, by, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> is that right? I hadn't noticed. Right. So, and, and, you know... It never uh, ends well, though, does it? <laughs> no, Let's no. be fair. Well, when you get three, a group of people together and go, right, we're white, and we identify for being white, it tends to end in camps and... <laughs> well, no, I, I disagree with you. So, for example, I don't think identifying as white or identifying as black or identifying as Hawaiian, you know, we have to look at these things differently. I mean, all of those identities 
can be abused. You can go, you can fixate and be extremist about it. But just if you think about the world, you know, 80% of the world's countries have an ethnic majority. You know, it's Persians in Iran, it could be Swana in Botswana, Japanese in Japan, etc. Those, those, you know, these people identify with their group, with their culture, and they're not out killing each other. Now, some will, but, but when we think about what are the predictors of genocide, for example, it's, it's, an, it's an ideology that says this country should only be inhabited by either a particular group or people who adhere to an ideology like socialism or like Islam, Islamism. And if you don't adhere to that, you're in the way and we're going to exterminate you. So it doesn't necessarily matter whether it's a particularist identity like ethnicity or it's a universalist identity like Islam or socialism. There are extreme versions and moderate versions, and you can have a moderate version of white identity as you can a moderate version of Islamic identity. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's sort of the normal state of affairs in most countries most of the time. So I think this focus on white identity as toxic actually doesn't have a basis in fact. Even though we know, yes, we're all thinking about the Nazis. You're wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're all thinking about the Nazis. You know, I, I lost relatives in the Holocaust. You know, yes, of course. Um, but that's one case. And we actually have to say, okay, all of the countries in the world that have ethnic majorities that identify with their group, and then all of the places in the world that have a genocidal event. And we have data sets, actually, where we can look at this question systematically, and we find, well, actually, you have to have a number of conditions in place, one of which is this exclusivist focus on identity. It's not just saying, you know, we are Hindus in India, but it's, you know, everybody who isn't a Hindu is garbage and must be exterminated. That's, that's a very different thing from just saying we identify as Hindu. So you can have moderate versions and extreme versions of any identity, whether it's a minority identity or a majority. So I, I really think, actually, we have to start to think about it being, you know, okay to express a moderate white identity, or what I mean by that is ethnic majority identity. Because again, 80% of the world's countries have these ethnic majority identities. If we try and say you can't have that, I actually think we are making things worse. If anything, I think that's the greater risk than if we say, okay, it can be expressed, but it's got to be done in a moderate way. Whereas what you would argue we've had is a blowback against excessive oppression of people's attempts to speak their mind about these issues, which right. result then in Trump and Brexit and all yeah. that. Yeah, so if you look at the Trump vote, for example, white identity is a major predictor of the Trump vote. Um, the sense that whites are being discriminated against, which is largely not true if we think about economics and politics, where they're actually doing very well. But in terms of the high culture, in terms of the sense of not being able to express an identity, whereas other groups can on campus, which is something the far right then uses. So it uses something which is actually true, that there is this double standard in terms of majorities and minorities being able to express an identity, attachment to heritage. And then it builds you know, the anti-Semitism, the anti-Islam, and all this other stuff, layers that on top. Uh, so I actually think we're giving oxygen and ammunition to the far right by maintaining this double standard. Well, see, if you were, like, yeah. you, you established your oppression credentials early right. on. I have to do that. You, you absolutely I have to. I shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. No, just for anyone who doesn't know us, right? right. I'm an immigrant. Francis' mother's an immigrant. Eric, you're an immigrant, immigrant and right. mixed race. Yes, We've got right. a few other tech guys in the room. <laughs> they're all either immigrants or the descendants of immigrants, right? So, and the reason right. we do that is because they're cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, but... 
so we've established that, right? Right. Because if we hadn't, that would be racist, right? Having this conversation. I mean, you are saying essentially right. white people need to be able to be proud of being white. Well, to, to be able to have an yeah, I mean, to have an identity, there's a difference. So there's a social psychology literature going now 50, 60 years, and it's summarized in a paper by Marilyn Brewer, actually, 1999, that there is no correlation between uh, hating an outgroup and being attached to your in-group. Mm. Now, I actually think overly fixating on an in-group is unhealthy as well. But what I, what I just want to establish here is that, so in the 2016 American National Election Study, how warm you feel towards whites is not predictive of how cool you feel towards blacks or Muslims. Actually, there's, if anything, a slight positive correlation. Warmer you feel towards whites, slightly warmer towards blacks or other groups. Um, and this is a, a finding that's repeated, found in many instances. So I think we have to, when we're talking about racism, there is real racism. We have to stick to the definition, and we can't sort of let that definition creep and expand to encompass anything that especially the left doesn't like, whether that's nationalism, whether that's majority group identity, etc. That's been part of the problem, because as that definition has crept out and shut down debate, because when you say something's racist, you're saying it's disgusting, it's beyond the pale, so we can't talk about it. And what that does is it then pushes it off the agenda of mainstream politics. And that then, it's like saying we can't sell alcohol, so who's going to rush in and fill that gap? Uh, it's not going to be a mainstream party. It's going to be the Sweden Democrats, for example. In Sweden, you couldn't talk about immigration. That was seen as racist. Boom, income the Sweden Democrats up to, you know, almost 20 percent in the last election, right? So, so that it's, it's, it's the issue of a political entrepreneur having a market because the mainstream parties feel this is too hot to handle. And the reason now there are some instances where the mainstream parties really should not touch an issue like segregation, you know, you, you, imposing segregation between blacks and whites. You know, George Wallace, the candidate uh, in the United States from the South, he said, "We want segregation," and yes, he was able to get a certain amount of populist mm. support for that. And I think the mainstream parties were right to say no to that and to push it off the agenda. But, but then, if you take that approach, it's correct for that approach, but, but then what about talking about levels of immigration? What about talking about national identity? You see, there's a temptation, if you are on the left, to want, or even if you are on the right, but you're a sort of free marketeer, to want those taboos to expand and expand so that these issues are taken off the table, especially if you fear that the population actually is disturbed by, by these issues and you don't want to discuss them democratically, well, if you can push them off the table by making them a taboo, you don't actually have to discuss them. And that's actually stored up a lot of the pressure that has led to the blowback, which I think we're experiencing or have experienced since 2012. Because it's interesting what yeah. you said there, where you said, you know, you get these people coming in and exploiting that, which is essentially what Trump did. Right. How do you, and you're talking about white identity, see, I would argue there are racist undertones to what Trump does. For instance, you know, saying, uh, I've actually had this conversation with Constant, I'm half Latin American. I think that when he came out and he said some of these people are rapists, I think that's a racist comment. Um, what, how, how do we, I think the, the question I really want to ask is, how do, do we, we divorce this idea of having a white identity from the sort of the racist undercurrents that sometimes can marry itself with that? Absolutely. So I think you gave a really good example when Trump said Mexicans are, are he's generalizing about a group and saying they're rapists. That some, is racism. Some, some or rapists. some of them are rapists. Yeah. I agree with you. That's a racist statement. 
okay? Um, I think we need to distinguish that from, say, saying, celebrating the arrival of Christopher Columbus, for example, or even the wall. I mean, the wall is actually not racist. If you think about a wall, okay, if you've got an illegal immigration problem, you decide to build a wall, you know, there's nothing actually racist about that. However, when you point to a group like Muslims or Mexicans and you say something nasty or generalizing about them, that is racist. Because, again, it's that distinction that, or as I'm using the term, it's a distinction between antipathy to an outgroup and attachment to an in-group. If it's attachment to in-group, it, it can be racist only if that attachment leads you to, say, discriminate. If you're a lawyer and you're hiring lawyers and you, you discriminate in favor of whites, clearly um, people are not receiving equal treatment under the law. Right? So sometimes attachment to your own group can lead to racist discrimination, but generally not. So I, I'm certainly allowing that there are instances where even if you don't hate another group, even if you just like your own group, you can still be racist by discriminating against other groups. But in general, I think that's not the case. And if we start to say that that identity, identifying as ethnically English or white American is is inherently racist, I think you actually piss off a lot of people. And you, if, if anything, you're giving fuel uh, to populism. And yeah. in the book, one of the things you talk about is the polarization that's occurred within society in terms of attitudes to immigration between people who might be broadly seen center or center right and the, the left and the liberals. Right. And you talk about the authoritarians and the conservatives and their different interests and priorities on the right and the liberals on the left. So can you t t tell our audience a little bit about how we're differently and how we view immigration differently. Right, right. So this is one of the, the keys in my book, is I don't use, say, class or age or any of these big demographics as, as key explanatory factors. I tend to focus on psychological makeup, and there's, there's a number of interesting writers. Karen Stenner is one social psychologist, uh, and there's a literature on that some people prefer order and stability, and other people prefer change, diversity, for example, difference. Um, and those are preferences. It's a bit like, do you prefer to go on holiday the same place every year, or do you prefer to go to a different place every year? And these things are, to some extent, uh, hereditary. Not entirely hereditary, but between kind of like a third and a half, depending on the disposition. So you've got people who really do like their habitual routine. They're not particularly exploratory. And there are a lot of these people. And there's actually nothing wrong with them. They just have a different taste. Mm -hmm. Now, so with diversity, what I would say is, is, in a liberal society, we must tolerate diversity. So that's, that, to me, is, is absolutely right, to insist that everybody must tolerate, tolerate difference. Uh, but the second question becomes, well, do you prefer difference over more difference over less difference, or, or different, greater difference over homogeneity? And actually, that is a taste. It's different from or toleration. It's preference, mm. right? And if, if we actually look at where people move to residentially, we, there's very, very little difference between white liberals and white conservatives. They tend to gravitate to very white areas. Liberals so, just yeah. talk a good well, game. Yeah. Right. So, so I mean, I'm not, I'm not accusing liberals of anything. I'm just saying that, I am. And that well, okay. I'm, but, I'm kidding. I'm but, kidding. <laughs> but people's actions, you know, and also in terms of friendship networks and who people marry, a lot of the behaviors actually belie the fact that actually people are preferring their own, not entirely, not exclusively, um, but it's just to say that, you know, it's a, you know, some people have a preference for more change and diversity. So what that then means is, when you, when it comes to something like immigration policy, you can't go out there and just say we must celebrate diversity, and if you don't, you're a bad person. 
uh, because actually people are wired differently. Now, we don't want to necessarily go to the other extreme and say diversity is bad. We don't, actually. But what we want to do is say there's differences in the population. We have to respect those differences to some extent. If you try and kind of push this idea that everyone must prefer diversity, it's a bit like saying everyone must prefer to go on holiday somewhere new each year. Actually, you're going to run up against a problem, which is that you're actually going to rankle people. And Stenner's work shows that, in fact, by pushing a diversity narrative, you're actually triggering a lot of the, these what are called authoritarians in the literature who prefer that order and stability. They react negatively to that message. So if you're actually going to diffuse if you're going to actually diffuse that threat or diffuse the popula what's driving populism, you need a different message, which might be, it might be one of saying, well, immigrants are coming, but they're assimilating, and things aren't changing that much. That would be more the kind of message that would work for people who like stability. But again, you don't want to say that to people who like change and diversity. So you've got to have different messages. It's just to say that there is nothing uh, innately better about preferring difference and change to preferring stability. Uh, and this is one of the things, again, one of these fuzzy lines that people get wrong is they collapse the difference between tolerating difference, which we, we must in a liberal society, and preferring difference, which is what, what I would call, well, Isaiah Berlin, the liberal theorist, would call positive liberalism, where you're actually saying, this is the ideal we want everybody to, to push towards. And that's when I think things get polarized, because if you're starting to push people towards something that they don't believe in, then you are actually going to polarize society. And I think that's one of the mistakes, actually, that progressives have made, is there is this assumption that if you don't love diversity, change, openness, that you must be a terrible person. I mean, you raised that point, and we were talking about sort of white indigenous cultures. I used to work a lot in the East End of London. And one thing that I noticed, like you said, a lot of um, them would be pro-Brexit or leave voters, white working class. But what I also noticed as well is that there tended to be a sort of a resentment because they would notice that people, so immigrants would be coming in, they'd be, they'd be in an area for a period of time and then they would move on. Whereas the white, essentially the white population would remain in that area. Do you not think a lot of that is as well is, is that resentment that they feel that they're not getting a good end of the deal, as it were? And what they want is a politician to come and come in, like Trump, and redress the balance. Well, it depends what you mean by a deal. I mean, in the Brexit vote, it is true that people who are poorer were somewhat more likely to vote leave. So yeah. there is so there's some truth to it in the Brexit vote, whereas in the Trump vote, there's this almost zero evidence for that. What I would say is that it's true that there is some of that, but by far, uh, you know, a much more important question than whether people are deprived or, or are not being able to move would be something like, do you support the death penalty? Or what's your views on immigration? You know, these are, these are much deeper questions in terms of getting at that cultural attitude. I mean, this is one of the reasons why education having a degree or not is so much more important for predicting the populist right voting than income. So you can be a wealthy uh, plumber, for example, and you know, you're very wealthy, you're very safe and secure, but because, I mean, because that educational qualification, getting a degree is linked to certain kinds of worldviews and cultural attitudes, it's a much more powerful predictor of support for the populist right. So again, it's tapping a more cultural orientation rather than material orientations. Um, and, and even when it comes to, for example, 
resenting politicians or the system. That too is not a predictor of populist right voting. So you'll, you know, Brexiteers, um, voters for the Green Party, voters for the Labour Party, or, or especially for Corbyn. But there isn't really a difference when you ask questions like, you know, decisions should be made by the people and not politicians, or Westminster politicians are remote. There are a number of these questions in the British election study, which, uh, which all show that this is not something that predicts. Uh, support for Brexit. And I think we have to go, by the way, this is the other thing I, I talk about a lot in the book, is we really have to go to these large-scale <clears throat> individual-level data sets to be able to control for these, you know, you put income in there, you stratify by age. So you can control for all these different effects, and once you do that, you actually see how unimportant something like income is compared to these attitudes. Uh, death penalty is the clearest one, because that gives you a much stronger take on whether someone voted for Brexit or voted for Leave, then then something like class. Oh, really? So if you if you agree with the death penalty, you're far more likely to be a Leave voter. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it's, it's, is it a marker of like conservatism or authoritarianism? Is that what yeah? So it's a marker of what they call authoritarianism, which which I think is you know a somewhat unfortunate term. You know, reflects. The, the orientation of, of academia, which is fine. I mean, of course, we can think what we want about the death penalty, but it's, a ref it's also linked to views on child rearing, strict versus permissive. So strict child rearing, views on death penalty would be another one. So these kinds of um, predictors, which all fall under the rubric of authoritarianism, that's a much more powerful uh, predictor of, say, populist right voting than anything related to class or income. All right. Well, we are where we are right, uh, right. <laughs> with with this right with immigration. So and and with the whole conversation, uh, if we accept everything that you say in the book, which is right. that's what's driving it, what what do you project going forward if if we keep doing what we've been doing? Right. Well, here's the thing. Right. So in the book, the the other part, and I mean the, the book's entitled White Shift, and the first part of White Shift is really about whites declining mm -hmm. as a share of the population across. The West, so in the, in the extreme case, might be Canada, where it's sort of in 2006, it might have been about 80% white, 20% minorities. 2106, it's going to be 80% roughly non-white, 20%. So that's kind of that's the most rapid change. Uh, you know, it won't be that quick in Britain. In Britain, it'll still be about 50% white by the end of the century, and and in the U.S., it'll be somewhere in between. Um, that's kind of white shift one, which is leading to this. You know these these a uh, decline in security in the white population, which is fueling populism, making immigration such a key issue, uh, and po and polarization. But if you actually go sort of 50 years beyond, so trailing that initial white decline is the second meaning of white shift, which is what I'm arguing is going to happen is that the white majorities are actually going to absorb large numbers of non-white groups essentially through intermarriage, voluntary intermarriage already happening. So the fastest growing group is the mixed race group. Um, and so if you just look at projections of the mixed race group in Britain going way out, and you know, of course, with all the caveats about these long-term projections, assuming that the rate of intermarriage remains the same, regardless of what happens to, inter, uh, to immigration levels, uh, you know, by the end of the, you know, by the mid-century, it's only about 7% or so mixed race. By the end of the century, it's like almost 30%. And then 50 years later, it's like 75%. So you get this kind of exponential curve, simply because anyone who's mixed, uh, a mixed race background, you know, myself might be an, uh, an example of that, a quarter Chinese. So I, anyone I marry then, 
you know, our, my kids will be counted as mixed race. Um, the secondary question of, of how they're treated, whether they're treated as white or, or not, is a secondary question. But still, the proportion of the population that has some uh, non-white background in Britain will, will begin to increase exponentially. The question then will be, well, how does that mixed race majority, which I'm arguing will kind of take over as the majority, how do they identify? And I'm kind of arguing that they will mainly, or they will selectively tend to emphasize their European ancestry, simply because at the global level, that's what's going to be distinctive about them. Whereas the non-European parts of the world, which will be economically much more powerful and also demographically much more powerful, I mean, there will be more of a sense of that is going to be the distinctiveness. But what it does, of course, mean is that, yes, the typical quote-unquote white person will be, you know, will have darker features, will be more, you know, look more what, like what we would call mixed race today. So that that's kind of the very futuristic take on this. So the three of us are a good example of the future. That's what <laughs> yeah, you're basically maybe, saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I find it very interesting you're talking about people's fear, and that, that's never been a fear of mine, number one, because my mother is Latin American. Number two, I spent a lot of time in Latin America, and that's essentially what the population is like. Do you think that it's right is probably the wrong word to use for it but do you do you understand why people have this fear that you know that you know that we are going to become an inverted commas less white because to me it's well that's just my family that's how I've grown up so it's, for me it's nothing to fear at all right so so two things on that one is that latin america you're right that that's what's happened there but there are it's not necessarily the direction that we would want to go, even though we probably, or we may be moving in that direction. Because Latin America has a racially stratified system where lighter-skinned people tend to be overrepresented in politics, top jobs, etc. Uh, more of a model, I think, are what you know what you see with the Maori and the Hawaiians and Native Indians, where you know whether you are more or less purely Native Indian doesn't mean you're more or less you know your, your class, your income, your opportunities aren't affected so much. Um, I think you can have that kind of a society. So there are groups like in Central Asia, like the Turkmen or, or the Pashtun and these other groups where, you know, you have people who look very white and you have people who look very South Asian. And that doesn't seem to be the basis for social stratification. So, uh, yeah, I would hope we could avoid the Latin American model if possible. Um, but the other thing... <laughs> we don't want to be like yeah, you, man. <laughs> right, right. I'm a quarter Costa Rican, too. So, but, but no, the, um, but, uh, no, the question about fear... no. I think, yeah, I think we have to address that fear because no, everybody, this is the point about white identity and, and also what I call the white tradition of national identity, which is this idea that I'm attached to being American, let's say, um, America has a traditional ethnic composition, which is a white majority, a black minority, etc. Or Britain has a traditional ethnic composition, which is a white British majority and minorities. Um, and Conservatism, a lot of these things are conservatism rather than racism, being attached to ethno-traditions that tend to give a country part of its uniqueness. And so the people are, don't want to see those, those particularities erode. Or they want to see them erode more slowly, right? So there, there's, there are many shades of gray. It's like, okay, I'm okay with a certain amount of change, but not rapid change. And all that nuance tends to be crushed out in an argument where it's either you're, you're for openness or you're closed. You know, actually, a lot of people are in between. They're okay maybe with some change, but they want to slow it down. I mean, that's sort of where a lot of people are on the immigration question. Um, so, yeah, I think that's understandable. I don't think the fears... I'm not actually sure how much of this is fear as much as a sense of loss 
you know, one of the best questions for predicting immigration attitudes is things in America were better in the past, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, but people are attached to the way things were when they were 20 years old. Mm. Um, growing up, they see, you know, they don't, another question would be, I don't recognize my country anymore, you know, these sorts of things. And that's just tapping into that cultural conservatism, which I do think has to be distinguished from, uh, you know, I hate Latinos or, or I hate Muslims, which is a, a clearly very racist thing. So I think a lot of this is actually people's expression of uh, a kind of conservatism. Now, the question is, what do you do with that? And, and part of my, what I'm saying is part of it is you have to, um, you have to listen to that and you have to say, okay, that's a valid, because some people are driven by culture, some are driven by economics. I mean, that's a valid concern. You're not going to get everything you want because we're a democracy, and some people want more immigration, and there's the economy, and which needs immigrants, and so on. So we're going to come to an accommodation. And I actually think that would be better because people would feel, okay, I've been heard, I haven't been shouted down as a racist, but I can't have everything I want because there are we have to pay the pensions and so on, or or, or some other reason. Um, so I think you can actually get at those fears. And also the other thing is I think you need to have a vision. Uh, for what's going to happen to the white majority. If you just say, you guys are going to shrink, um, we're going to get more diverse, celebrate that. <laughs> it's just, that's actually, it'll work for the more cosmopolitan-minded members of, and this is again down to psychology, some people like that change and they're going to embrace that, but for a, a significant chunk of the population, that's not going to wash. They're going to want some vision of where they're going. And partly that's why this idea of white shift is, okay, you know, it is true that you know, what I'm arguing here is that this mixed race group is essentially going to carry forth the memories, the myths, the history of this, what is currently the white group. If people can, if the, if the white majorities can see something positive in that, then maybe they can say, okay, we've got a positive future too. No, we're not just yesterday's news. You know, I think some way of giving them a future. Whereas if you just say um, we're getting more diverse and that's great, I think that's that's going to further the kind of polarization that we're seeing. So it sounds sounds like the prescription that you have is it would be reducing the levels of immigration while reassuring the white majority that immigrants who come here are going to integrate, they're going to become right. part of society, they will intermarry, and we right. all live happily ever after together. Yeah, yeah. So so part of this is is to say that, you know, for the average person thinks the number of immigrants or the number of Muslims is two or three times higher than it actually is. Mm -hmm. So we've, if we've got a problem of, it, the problem is that the narrative of change and diversity is dominant. And what we what we need more of is the narrative of actually there's a lot of people intermarrying, and actually, you know, all those European immigrants, their kids are identifying as white British, and they're being, you know, essentially they're part of you. And the Afro-Caribbeans, half of them marry out, and, and the mixed-race offspring marry mostly whites. And the, so, so this narrative of kind of melting uh, and reducing the threat that actually they're joining you, you know, and that, 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 that in fact they're not so different. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you want it to emphasize. So it's completely under the radar. All of that knowledge about how much voluntary assimilation is going on. Even Muslims, not so much in this country, but like in France, you know, over half, I think it's about half of Algerians, French Algerians marry outside the group. Um, so a lot of French Muslims are actually secular and they're marrying out and nobody knows that. You know, these are the kinds of things that need to be more widely known so that people are actually can think, okay, I, you know, it's not a case of we're just going to be outnumbered and, and threatened. So part of what I advocate is 
moving to a, a different style of political communication, especially for conservative whites. You have to have different messages. You can't go to minority groups and say, hey, you guys, you're being assimilated. Isn't that great? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, right? so, but that's okay. I mean, I think you politicians do this all the time. I mean, you know, they have slightly different messages. Right. And, and uh, yeah. But if, sorry, Francis, yeah, yeah. I just want to finish on that. But you would also, if I, please correct me if I'm wrong, right. you also do say in the book that immigration levels need to come down. Well, yes. I, well, I don't, I'm not making a prescription. What I'm saying is that if the, pu if the public is not comfortable with the rate of ethnic change and they're willing to pay the economic price, well, then the immigration numbers should come down. Um, I'm saying that maybe when the majority gets comfortable with this idea that, of that they're growing through assimilation, then maybe they'll relax a bit and then maybe that those numbers will come back up again. But one of the problems that I see, particularly with that, left narrative that says this is, you know, it's racist to be in favor of reducing immigration, especially reducing immigration because you're uncomfortable with the ethnocultural consequences. I mean, that is still essentially a taboo. I mean, even Steve Bannon, you know, uh, was interviewed, well, he had that, that uh, interview with The Economist, and he was saying, oh, I'm an economic nationalist, which is nonsense. Actually, if you look at the support base and what drives the Trump vote, it is not economic nationalism. It is essentially a cultural sense of cultural loss. Um, so because of that taboo over uh, what I would call sort of this idea of, of casting ethno-traditional conservatism as racism, the attachment to your own group if you're white as racism, because of that narrative, uh, it prevents open discussion of this. And I actually think it makes things worse in many ways. I mean, I think the Brexit vote, for example, to some extent, the Brexit vote was an outcome of people who are upset at immigration, more upset at non-European than European immigration, by the way, and if you actually look at the polling, the survey data on this, they couldn't actually express themselves. No politician could articulate that fear directly. So this kind of got diverted into punching the EU. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't grievances around the EU and, and Brussels being bureaucratic and remote and free movement and everything, but still, that was an acceptable narrative, is to, to hit the EU. And so it all, you know, because their immigrants are white, we can go after that, we can claim they're putting pressure on services or they're competing for jobs and whatever. And, and actually the outcome of that might be quite negative for the British economy. That's one example. Another example is to say, okay, people are upset about immigration, it's because of pressure on public services. So if you are an, an immigrant, you have no access to public services, you know, for five years, or whatever it is. So, so any attempt to tighten up, and all that just does is, is injure, you know, an immigrant who wants to go to the hospital or, or wants to get, who needs maybe income support. So basically what you're saying is we're having a fake conversation. We're talking about the economy. We're right. talking about immigrants taking jobs or taking hospital beds, right. where really that isn't the core concern that's driving the populist right. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's somebody who, you know, typically someone will be, will be against immigration first, and then they'll look for the reasons that are acceptable. It might be pressure on services. So Jonathan Haidt has this idea of the elephant and the rider. Mm -hmm. The elephant is the driver, and then we tell ourselves a story that's the rider. So I think this, this stuff about services and jobs is a bit of a, a rider story. Not to say that it has no impact, but if you look, for example, you ask people, is immigration a problem in your local area? 20% say it's a problem. Is it a problem nationally? 70%. Now, that kind of tells you that this is much more of a national level issue than it's not about local 
local concerns do matter in some cases, Boston, in Lincolnshire, or some of the Midwest United States towns that have had rapid increases in, in Hispanic population, then yes, you will, you will always see this jump in support for populist right. But for most people, it's what's going on nationally that counts. Yeah, because yeah. you, you were talking about, so, you know, the, the worries about, for instance, Muslim immigration, all the rest of it. Right. Isn't a lot of this based in aesthetics? Um, I'll give you an example. I was going to, uh, my dad is from Wigan, which is a very poor part of, obviously, for those of you who are watching overseas, a very poor part of north of England. And I was going to watch a rugby league match, which was everybody from up north came to Wembley to watch a rugby match. And the supporters were talking to me and they were going, oh, I can't recognise London anymore before it used to be filled with cockneys like you. And right, and on one hand, right, I'm, you know, I'm born in London, but if I'd taken more from my mother's side of the family, I doubt we'd be having that conversation. Right. So, do you see? I just yeah, spite, but okay. What I would say though is, so, so what? What? What's your yeah? Point but I'm, I'm saying that a lot of it is just, isn't it? A lot of it that just people see something completely different to them and recoil in fear, and it's almost an emotional response. Okay, so it depends. If they see people who are different and fear them or hate them, yeah, then that's racism, and I think that's deplorable. Yeah. If what they're saying is. I was attached to London that had a certain character and I feel a sense of loss. Yeah. I think that's very different. I don't think that is. I think that's just a conservatism. Yeah. And, and people should be able to express that sense of loss. And they should actually even be able to say, I don't want that to change as fast. You can imagine, you can see it. So we can look at, say, African Americans in Harlem or, or black Britons in, in Brixton yeah. here in London. You know, let's say Brixton, and of course we know it's become a lot less black, be, become more white as, yeah. as hipsters and yeah. others are moving in. So you might, you might be an Afro-Caribbean in Brixton saying, I miss the way Brixton used to be. And I, I, my view is, actually, that's just conservatism. That's not that you hate white people, right? So that's the kind of subtle differences yeah. that I think we need to talk about. Yeah. But if you're saying, I hate those you know, yeah. white people, then that's different. That, yeah. that then is, is so, so that's why I think we need to make these distinctions. And actually, if you do surveys and you ask, liberals and conservatives, their views of why, you know, people don't like immigration, you will tend to get liberals thinking that it's the, the conservatives hate minorities. And the conservatives will say, no, they just are attached to their own group. So we're, we're getting people kind of talking past each other and mm. kind of seeing the other in a negative light. And I actually don't think that's necessarily the case. How do you think we got here, Eric? How did we get to this point where expressing those concerns that might be conservative about the way things used to be or things are changing too fast, when did that become racist? And how right. did that become racist? Right. Well, that's a very interesting story, which I kind of go to in the book. I'm not so much of a fan of these theories which say that this social justice warrior stuff is a new thing and it's related to social media. I mean, of course, those things have an impact. But I actually think you have to put this in the context of a much longer intellectual history and ideological development of the left that goes back even 200 years to utopian socialism and anarchism. Right. We only have five minutes. Okay, five minutes. Okay. So, so what I mean is... No, you we have, have more time yeah, than yeah, that. I was yeah, just yeah, trying yeah, to yeah, keep yeah, it... Yeah, keep yeah, it yeah. All right, I'll try, I'll try and make it short. So basically, 
there's a fusion of, of, of two ideas. One is what I call, well, not me, but other sociologists have called modernism, which is this idea of anti-tradition. New and different is, is better, essentially. That's what we're about, new and different. Um, and that if you look at modernist intellectuals in the United States, for example, uh, their view was that the WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, was stifling, boring, and you know that you had the prohibition of alcohol in 1920. So they reacted against that, and and they said, well, look at these expressive groups like African Americans with their jazz, and, and Greeks, and how wonderful are these exotic people, and and how how boring and awful are, are, are our group. And that's kind of like the beginnings then, of this, kind of trope, which is sort of a bit of an academic word, but this narrative of. Uh, of kind of being against your own group, the adversary culture. Now, it's not a bad thing to be critical of your own group. You don't want to be just completely saying my group's the best and that's it. <laughs> so, so you have to have that, and, and you need cosmopolitans. I mean, I actually think that you have to have space for people to be citizens of nowhere or whatever. But um, essentially, that criticism, that critique of the majority culture, actually then becomes the dominant culture in the high culture. Um, so this starts to happen. You know, even in the 50s, you know, you had the beatniks and you had a number of intellectuals who were, again, talking about square white culture and, and, and all of this, but it didn't quite have the same edge of, you know, white privilege, you're awful. Uh, but, it was, but it was a similar sort of sentiment. And then we get into the 60s and 70s with the expansion of television and the, and the university sector, and this becomes the dominant motif in the high culture. And once that happens, and then it becomes something that you have to buy into, because Academia then changes, and, and, and we talked about this earlier, where um, the left-right ratio amongst the professoriate goes for some, something like it goes from something like two to one in 1960 to, particularly in the social sciences and humanities, it's it's kind of you know ten to one or, or something like that. So you get a, a complete uh, domination over time because of the baby boomers moving into academic positions, and something similar happens in parts of the media, but it's never quite the same in the media. It's really academia where you get this complete uh, changeover. And, that, and then they bring their mores with them, and one of them is this idea that you know, white identity is racist, worry about ethnic change is racist. It's never actually, you will never find a clear statement or a political theory defense of this in philosophical terms in any of the literature. You will find it in the critical race, the radical stuff, which is basically ideology dressed up as, as academic research, but in terms of the respected top journal uh, uh, political theory, you won't find a, a statement of this. But then all of a sudden it becomes the case that talking about immigration is a racist thing. It was less the case you know, in Britain. Britain actually had a more open conversation, but US, Sweden, Germany, you know, many countries you really didn't have, it was seen as very taboo. Uh, and this is part of the reason why we see these sort of sudden it's the sudden emergence of the AFD in Germany or the sudden emergence of the Sweden Democrats because there simply was nobody willing to touch those issues politically. Now, we, we've said that sort of harking back in this nostalgia and wanting the country right. as it used to be isn't racist. Do you think Trump and this right-wing populism is here to stay? And do you think it's going to be a factor or, is it, or do you just think it's a political blip, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I, I should say by you know that conservatism isn't racist, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do so. But yeah. I just think it's a perspective we should be debating. Yeah. Um, the populism is it here to stay? I think right now it is because the the ethnic shifting is making the majority insecure. It's bringing cultural issues more to the surface. 
And this is actually you know, cutting across the old left-right political divide, which was used to be about redistribution versus, versus free market. That's becoming less important, whereas the, cultural, the culture wars, if you like, around more or less diversity and change versus you know, tradition and, and continuity, that's becoming a bigger issue. Um, yeah, if you look at the European case, in nine out of 10 European countries uh, after 1996, you look at the migration numbers, you can look at the rise in media stories about immigration, tracking that. And tracking that is support for the populist right and concern about immigration. So, and, when, and so actually the, the numbers are very solid in showing how immigration is very much the driver. Um, now, if immigration falls as it has, that will take some of the steam out of the populist right. And it has actually, if you really look at the numbers, the, these numbers peaked at the peak of the migrant crisis, have fallen back a little bit. Um, but I think underlying this are, the, are all these unanswered questions about who are we, what's the future of, of the country in terms of its traditional ethnic composition. And, and that's why I think actually if politicians were honest and addressed that and said, that's a valid concern, there is going to be change, we've heard you, we've, we've taken your concerns on board, immigration is actually going to be lower than, it other, than, than might be optimal for the economy because we're listening to your cultural concerns. I actually think that would be the way forward. Um, but, but that isn't happening, Eric. It's that not happening. It's not right. happening at all. I mean, right, right. are you concerned by the direction that we're going in? Well, what's happening is that these populist right parties have emerged and started posting these very high numbers, and you've had Brexit and Trump. That's actually broken the taboos around some of these subjects. So in Sweden, now all the parties are talking about reducing immigration. Mm which they have to in order not to lose those voters to the Sweden Democrats. Um, I think actually the breaking of some of those taboos is a good thing, but some of the taboos actually needed to be in place. So I think now you're seeing these burqa bans. You know, I don't agree with some of the anti-Muslim stuff, so, so particularly bans on freedom of, of religious expression. So I think that's where this, you've started this process of rolling back the taboos, but then it can overshoot and go too far. Right. That's the risk. Um, and maybe Poland and Hungary, we even see some of the results of that. So, you, you know, but I think this is the risk when you, when you don't address these problems, uh, let them get out of control, then they take on a dynamic of their own. Um, so, uh, you know, the politicians aren't, well, they're beginning to address it. I think, I would say there's been an improvement in the sense that more countries are now willing to discuss levels of immigration, you know, and that wasn't the case before. So maybe we'll get to a stage where the center parties will take over this issue and say, okay, we will keep the numbers, you know, modest to what the population is comfortable with. It hasn't think, happened in Britain, though, so far, has it? Well, there's been a discussion about immigration in Britain. Um, and, of course, if you're part of the EU, obviously you can't control the numbers. But even the non-European numbers were quite high in Britain. So. I do think it's partly happened in Britain. It's happened in Britain a lot more than in, in some other countries. So Britain was certainly having a more open conversation than Sweden or Germany. And I do think that you know if the numbers continue to be higher than what people want, there will be pressure on the mainstream parties. The mainstream parties, I think, are somewhat responsive. I think they will pay attention to that issue. So it's not the case, it's not the same situation as Sweden prior to 2014, where they said, we won't even, we're going to close our ears, and that's something we don't talk about. And, you know, that is a particularly bad situation. So I actually think the mainstream parties are learning and are kind, and that's also on the left. The center left in, in a number of countries, Denmark would be one of them are moving in that direction as well. 
Um, but again, I, if there is a worry, I think it might be that, you know, the stigmatization of Muslims, which is something that is, I think, uh, a, a toxic, bad thing. You know, it's one thing to be against, um, to say that, that the burqa is, is, you know, doesn't allow a woman the right to express herself. I think that's fine to, to sort of make a cultural case for it, but to ban it legally, uh, I think is problematic. Well, you're, you're a real liberal in, right. in, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, traditional right. sense of the word. You believe yeah, in freedom. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> uh, um, we're almost out of time. Um, t tell me, I always like to ask this question of people who work in a field in which they are not necessarily representative of the mainstream opinion. What's it like being you in academia? <laughs> right. Well, um, come back to me after the book's published. I won't say. I mean, I know. I'd say already there is a sense in which you know uh, quite a few people are, are are not pleased with with some of the things that that I say. But I think that in the field I'm in, which is quantitative political science, you know, if you've got your numbers behind you, I think most of those people are actually pretty fair-minded, uh, and most of ac most academics, I think, are center-left. You know, there is a significant far-left group. I mean, I'm not going to gloss that. But uh, you just have to say, well, I'm going to deal with the people who are civil. I can have massive disagreements with people politically, but we can still be civil, you know. And so I think can that's... You? So in academia, you still can? At least in... I think UK academia is possible. It depends. It's department to department. <laughs> I would say in my department, yes. Uh -huh. um, it's like West Side Story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I know that in some others, there's a lot of conformity. Um, and so it's probably harder if you have... All it takes is a few very outspoken individuals to sort of chill and make it a much more polarized... And, and, well, or a more difficult environment, I'd say. But I don't think the UK is yet in the same boat as the United States, where you have these completely rabid departments, and 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 you know, it, it, there are the, the climate, that kind of climate, like Evergreen State and Middlebury, and you know, there hasn't, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been anything quite that extreme in Britain. Uh, let's hope it doesn't get there. Yeah, let's yeah. hope. Let's <laughs> okay. hope because that is a big like in terms of what's happening outside of academia. Right. That is such a huge problem: is the inability to have honest, genuine conversations. It's like when right. I talk to somebody that I disagree with, yeah. face to face, and we actually have a genuine conversation, and we both come away from having learned something. I'm almost surprised every time because that's so counter right. to the kind of conversations that we're now used to having on Twitter, on Facebook, on whatever. Right. Do you know what I mean? Oh, no, I, I think you're absolutely right, and this gets to the heart of this problem with these taboos, because you get people who are so committed to this, what I call left modernism, this vision of you know, equality and diversity, this kind of utopia. And if you're in the way of that, you're not an ally, and somehow we got to get you out of the way, and so I can't tolerate you, i got to suppress you. Or, and, and part of it also gets to a belief that human beings are blank slates, and that if we can just choke off the supply of messages that are countering our utopia, you know, if we can just silence them, those people, then we won't have a problem, because we know people are essentially uh, clay to be molded, um, and so if we can control the information supply, then we can get what we want, and so the, the focus is always on shutting down and controlling, mm. um, and actually I just think that's, that's just not human nature, I mean, you've got differences in some people, people aren't just blank slates, uh, you know, and they're not going to be fooled. So I think, you know, I, th I think it's a self-defeating strategy. Some people are blank slates. I've met, I've met a few in my time. Maybe, I've yeah, taught yeah. a few as well. <laughs> well, listen, Eric, it's been a fantastic interview. Uh, thank you very much for coming to speak to us. The question we always like to ask at the end is, what is the one issue that no one's talking about that we ought to be talking about? Um, 
minority supporters of populist right parties. Mm. So minority Trump voters would be one. You know? My mother being one. Oh, really? My, mother, okay. my mother's a Latino Trump voter. Oh, really? She okay. loves him. Well, almost 30% of Latinos voted for Trump. Um, here's, a, here's an interesting one. A question was asked after the Charlottesville riots. Uh, yeah, which, which hopefully our, your viewers will be familiar with, which was around this um, Confederate. Judging by the comments, a couple of them were there. All right, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> so, so the Charlottesville right, um, they asked a number of questions like, uh, white, you know, white Americans are under threat in, in America today, something like that. Um, whites are under threat in the country today. 70% uh, of Latino and Asian Trump voters replied yes to that question. Uh, which is not that different from white Trump voters' answer to that question. Or, it's very important to protect and preserve the European Christian heritage of the United States. You know, Asian and uh, Latino Trump voters, something like 55 percent, you know, said yes. So there's actually quite an interesting phenomenon of ethnic minorities who are patriotic, and part of their patriotism is an attachment to the way the nation is culturally. Mm. So it's. It's really a mistake to think that minorities are automatically going to go in favor of multiculturalism. They're going to split. Most of them actually will support multicultural vision, but actually there's a polarization there uh, as well. Very interesting. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for coming on. Your book is called White Shift. It's released on... October 25th in the UK. Uh, not till the end of January in the United States. All right. Well, as Francis takes a massive sneeze, <laughs> the perfect time as we're about to end the episode. Yeah. Um, get the book when it comes out. It's, I've read it. It's absolutely fascinating. It's a great, great book. Uh, I think you're, as I said to you before we started the interview, you're probably going to get slammed from the left and from the right, I think right. which is exactly where we are. Uh, and I think that probably means you're doing something correct. I was going to say doing something right, but you're doing something correctly, <laughs> uh, which is trying to, to be in the middle. Is what we try and do on the show. Is like you know the, the the right is going right, and the left has gone wherever it's gone. It's gone crazy as well. And I think moderate people in the middle who are interested in truth and facts and evidence need to come together and have these conversations and try and you know make society. Uh, more harmonious as we move forward and I think that's if people were to actually read your book instead of reading three sentences and, and getting annoyed about it I think that's where it's headed so thank you very much for coming to speak to us uh, get the book if you enjoyed it obviously as always subscribe to the YouTube channel click that bell button uh, do you want to do the social media stuff yes um, yep if so if you're enjoying it please follow us on TriggerPod at uh, Instagram on Twitter, uh, Trigonometry on Facebook, and uh, I think that's it, yeah, that's about that's it. That's it. And Eric, before we let you go, yes. uh, your Twitter handle is? Uh, at E-P-K-A-U-F-M, E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Well, we'll get, that, we'll get that in the video, yeah. so uh, make okay. sure you follow Eric. You, you're always tweeting and retweeting yep. interesting articles, so plenty of stuff for you to get into. Thank you very much, and enjoy your week. We'll see you in a week's time for another fantastic episode. See you later. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.